in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Hello, my friends. This is Rob Kane. Welcome to another episode, Season 2, Episode 12. Today on the show, we have Jordan Harbour, host of the popular podcast known as Twilight Histories. If you want to be delivered to a different time, to a different universe, this podcast is for you. In addition, we have a book review of a textbook called A Guide to Archaeological Field Methods. This book is edited by Robert F. Heiser, director of the University of California, Archaeological Survey. This book has been in print since 1949. Now, just a minute. This is a lot more exciting than you realize. If you want to know what Indiana Jones was teaching his students, this is your book. What's more, we have Mr. William Glover, archaeologist and historian, to give us insights on what life is like during a dig. And finally, the music today is performed by Matthew Lee Embleton. His musical piece is titled Hymn to Mithras, with vocals by Minnie Rogers. After the opening dramatic narration, we shall tell you where to get more of his music, so stick around. In his composition, Mr. Embleton plays a ten-string lyre-harp. The title of episode 12 is Venus and Imaginative Archaeology. goddess of love. I am the protector of gardens and herbs. My other name is Aphrodite, mother of Aeneas, the founder of Rome who carried his father on his back from the burning Troy. I am worshipped by both men and women. I am claimed as the ancestor of Julius Caesar. Bargains are made with me for love, bathed in respect, and sometimes in lust. I am a statue, carved from cypress marble by the Greek Timon. When he is done, he is covered with dust, white stone dust, and on the day he finished me, slaves for three months buffed my skin until it was smooth as flesh. I sent one of the slaves into madness who imagined me to be his Galatea. I stand as if I came out of a bath, one leg forward, knees slightly bent, back straight, 
with my hand touching between my breasts. My eyes speak of infinite possibilities. I was commissioned to stand forever in a temple of Rome. A great flourish of priests and prayers set me properly in my place. Incense is burned. Men and women prostrate themselves before me, and upon satisfaction that no rules or mishaps have insulted the gods, the great bronze doors open for business. The faithful file in and their prayers begin. One woman whispers, Mother Venus, I am barren. Make a child within my womb. A man whispers, Mother Venus, I am in love with Aurelia. Make her fall in love with me and I shall sacrifice two goats in your name. I grant prayers. People make bargains with me. They sacrifice to me lambs, goats, pigeons, and I give them their wish. How long have I stood in this place? How much time has passed? A year? Another year? A decade? No, two. A century goes by, and then another, and... Smoke. I smell smoke. There's rioting in the streets. Worshippers run into the temple. No, they are not worshippers. They're refugees. They are scared and seek shelter in the deep hallways of my temple. There's rioting. What do I hear? Bread? Bread? Shortage? Political upheaval? There's always upheaval when there's not enough bread. What do I hear? Caesar, save us, the voices moan and shout, shouting, shouting in the streets outside. The people look to a man for guidance rather than aiming their prayers to the gods. Another year passes, then a decade, and another, another decade slips by. The time of emperors has arrived. Augustus has been deified. When did he become a god? I moved to a side hall in the temple to be worshipped as an afterthought. The statue of Augustus stands in my place. And yet, some faithful still come to me. A woman whispers, Mother Venus, please grant my wish. I look for a husband for my daughter. Grant her a good man. Another year passes. Decades. Century flies by. Why does it all go so fast? The faithful come less and less. An odd occurrence comes my way. A young woman enters my chamber and falls upon her knees. She's hiding. She prostrates herself, her face down on the cold marble. I listen to her whispers as the hobnail sandals of the soldiers echo through the halls. Closer, closer, they're coming closer. Mother Mary, save me, please. Mary, I say to myself, who is this Mary she asks for? She addresses some goddess with whom I'm not familiar. Virgin Mary, she says, save me. She is crying. Her sobs are racked with fear. 
The hobnail boots come closer. They are checking everywhere in the temple. Now they come into my small chapel. They see the woman on the floor. I use what magic, what power I have, and cloud the soldiers' minds. I am Venus. I cast a dream into their minds. They shall dream of the women in the Sabera. They shall dream of the brothels that line the streets until duty fades from importance. They take a few more steps in her direction, but my magic spews out like perfume. They stagger for a moment under its power. They turn and leave the temple, and the sound of their boots echo out the front door as they head for the street to find pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Virgin Mary, she says to my surprise. Her face shines in gratitude. She leaves to spread the word that a miracle has occurred. Who is this Virgin Mary? Another decade passes. Another and another. The numbers of my worshippers increase, but they no longer call me by my name, Venus. Women and men kneel in front of me, but they now call me that name, Virgin Mary. They refuse to gaze upon my nakedness. When they pray to me, they avert their eyes. For the first time, my beauty seems secondary to whatever they see or expect of me. Beauty is what I was known for. But these people seek something much deeper. They seek salvation. Stern-faced priests cover me in clothes. I'm dressed like a shepherdess, a lowly shepherdess. Like a mortal woman, not a goddess. More and more worshippers come to me. One day I see the statue of Augustus, pretend god that he is, carried away from the temple, but I remain in place. I. Good. Many decades pass. I move back to the front center aisle as I was in the beginning. However, now I am called Mary. Virgin Mary, Mother of God. Centuries pass. I see it all. The world has fallen on its ear. Shouts fill the streets and smoke and flame fill the high windows of the temple. Women come inside running, fall at my feet. Men enter through the bronze doors. Tall, blonde, mustached men. Gold chains draped across their chests. The results of raiding houses and ripping chokers from the necks of unprotected women. They are tattooed in blue ink and their legs are strong from a lifetime on the back of horses. They stink. Their eyes are wild as they drag the screaming women away from the base of my pedestal. Another man on horseback bursts through the open doors. At first I think it to be a centaur. A man and horse as one combined. Until the man raises up and stares at the high ceilings of the temple. 
The horse tries to find its footing on the marble floor and the rider, all muscle and flowing hair. He scans the temple for gold and silver. I notice his saddlebags are already bulging, but he wants more. In one motion, he drops from his horse to the ground. His eyes fall upon me. Is he another worshiper? He smiles as he approaches me. Does he bring a gift? Does he bring a sacrifice? His eyes are wild. The centaur man tears off the clothes that now cover me. And once more, I am naked. He laughs. He kisses me on the stomach. Is this a form of worship? He turns away now and mounts his horse in one fluid motion. And he's out the door. I am left in an empty temple. I hear all around me the raping of the city for days and for nights. A week passes, a month. In time, worshippers begin to return to the temple. A priest has me removed. As I am dragged away, I gaze on my replacement. There is a new Mary set in my place. Her garments are of a shepherdess, but now carved in marble. I am to be thrown out. The priests declare that I am a pagan god. I am condemned, cast off in a side alley. I find myself surrounded by so many other gods, heroes. We've all become irrelevant. We are a collection of the past. Remnants of life that has disappeared. The side street is cut off, isolated. There is a fence at one end and a gate at the other. Are we hidden here to hide the proof of the past? To prevent embarrassing questions? Carved saints replace us on the streets. But the gods, the goddesses, the heroes of the past are relegated to shadows, warehoused far from the eyes of the public. Around me stands Diana, Apollo, Dido, Hector. There is even Galatea, the statue carved by the King Pygmalion. Odd, she should be here too. I was the goddess that once breathed life into her and made her human. I cast a spell that took her from marble to flesh. I attended her wedding so long ago. And now she too has been discarded in her marble form. There are others in this back prison exposed to all the elements, old Roman statues from years past, old farts carved wearing their togas, their descendants gone, or no longer believing in the sanctity of ancestor worship. We are all prisoners here, unwanted, no longer worshipped. Decades continue to pass, centuries Snow and wind and rain blasts us from the sky. 
One day, the gate is open to our prison. Rough hands reach out and pull each god from his storage place. We are heaved onto the back of bull carts and driven for miles and miles, dragged and thrown into a swamp. One upon the other, we fall beneath the surface of this muck, sinking into the mire, our weight taking us down to the bottom. Green slime surrounds us. Gods and goddesses and old Romans are drowned in mud. Time drags through centuries and swamp grows crowded and more crowded. Garbage from the city finds its way. A filthy sludge closes in. For centuries, I now sleep entombed. Suddenly, light trickles through from the surface. Men, filthy and ragged, pull up the remains of the heroes and gods, and I too am dragged. Dragged up by a farmer who is trying to make this land good for his own farm. I find myself once more on the back of a bull cart. Aeneas and Diana are taken elsewhere. I don't know. I find myself in a small hut. My only job seems to be to prop open a door. My legs... My legs are gone. Cracks became fissures through the years under the pressure of the earth that built up on top of me. Only my torso remains, but my head, my arms. There are many, many nights the farmer says nothing, but stares at me, my face and body lit by the meager flames from his fire. He is alone. My presence reminds him of his loneliness, perhaps a woman he wishes for. A priest visits, and he is angry with the farmer. He says he finds my nakedness offensive. He orders the poor man to get rid of me, or face excommunication. The farmer drags me from his hut, sets me outside by a small waterfall hidden by the trees in the forest, deep in the forest. The farmer visits me in private. I am his secret. I am only his. In time, he no longer comes. The years pass, and decades again, more decades. They grow into a century of water, as ferns grow up and cover me like a dress spun from the earth. Then the land shakes and shakes and the trees fall. I tip over into the pond. Finally, the earth stills, and again, the years creep by. Animals come to drink from the pond. Men and women camp by my shore. But mostly, I notice that lovers come. They come to hide in this natural place, as Venus I still have power, and I use it on all the lovers 
What else should I do with the passage of time? I hear them talk that the water is hexed, the cold spring water believed to be a love portent. They do not know that below the surface, this Venus resides. Centuries pass over like the sun that sets and rises, too many times to count. A face breaks the surface on the water. A large man, fat-cheeked, with a long, wet mustache that looks like a snake attached to his lip. His face goes back up to the air, and I hear him shout to his companions in uniforms of blue, red, and gold. La femme! he shouts. The men pull me out of the pond. Again I'm set upon a cart, and again I go on a long journey. I am sold like a common slave to an officer who then sells me to a general who then gives me as a gift someone named Bonaparte Napoleon they speak in a beautiful language it's fluid and musical they call this country France I have been brought to a city called Paris a city named for the ancient hero of Troy. It's a magnificent city. Paris. Spires and temples of unimaginable size. I am now spotless. And I sit in a great hall with tall columns reminiscent of a Greek temple. I am the guest of an emperor who trots me out for dinner parties on a wagon pulled by goats. I am ridden around the dinner table while his guests applaud. Once more, I am worshipped. Once more, I am loved. Years pass. The palace is in turmoil. Chaos again surrounds me in the great hall. Servants run. Boxes are packed. And I, too, am torn from my stand and boxed away. Once more, I'm on the move. For months, I live in this box, jolted and carried from place to place. A long voyage, a sea voyage, where I feel the rocking back and forth as the ship is battered by waves. When light finally descends, the top of my box is removed, and guards stare down at me, strangers of a different language. The French emperor has been vanquished. The empire has fallen, and I have been stolen as part of the great spoils. No longer am I held by natives of Gaul, but a kind of islander called the English. The guards wear red coats with gold braid. I am set out in a large hall to be seen. This seems to be another kind of temple. A lord's manor with Doric columns held up with blue walls and painted murals of mythological scenes quite familiar to me, reminiscent of the gods floating in blue skies. 
They speak a different language, but these too are people with visions of empire. Here, I am given center stage. Around me, other statues, ancestors of the English, but these statues are dressed like Roman senators too, or high-born women of ancient times. I spend decades here. The children and grandchildren of the English Lord come. They enter and go. I introduce boy after boy, future lords to the mysteries of love. And each future lord of the manor, I represent the mystery of the female body. Out of the window I see a tale that could, that could have been told by Homer himself. The sky's filled with planes heading to the distant city they call London. The horizon is lit up with search beams scouring the sky for flying intruders. This world is filled with strange sights. I am a goddess, but man is the one that mastered fire, once stolen from the gods by Prometheus. He turned fire into other things for his use, and now into bombs. Man has mastered the air, transversing it far better than Icarus. Such destruction I once thought only could belong to the Lord Jupiter, but now the English Lord and his children listen to a voice that emanates from a box filled with glowing vacuum tubes. The voice in the box tells of bombs that rain down on London and the sound like boulders thrown from the hands of Cyclops. More days and months pass. Decades. Once again I am removed from my spot of honor with no warning. This time I am sold to satisfy the English Lord's tax. I hear his government insists that the rich need to share their riches with the poor. Once more I am boxed away for a journey and must await my new destination. I hear the nails driven to seal the top of my wooden box, my tomb before they carry me away. It seems almost that no time passes before I am lifted up out of this box. Dour-faced men and women set me upon a stand. The stand seems to give me support for my missing legs. I see other gods, goddesses, heroes all around me that I, that I have known, I recognize. They too have been saved. 
they too have risen again. They too stand in this hall, resplendent in a temple made for us. We are in the English Museum, in a city that now is a megatropolis of unbelievable scope and scale. What starts as a mere collection of statues in the 1700s now spreads one by one throughout the halls until 13 million objects representing the face and culture of man across the millenniums is on view. Each that stands about me is familiar. I now live in Elysium. There is Apollo holding a lyre. Olympus? Yes. Hmm, yes. There is an Amazon Amaki frieze battle I remember between the Greeks and the Amazons outside the walls of Troy. There is the column from the temple of Artemis. Where is Jupiter? I must pay my respects. I hear whispers from the gods and goddesses. Welcome, Venus. Salutations, Venus. You shall like it here. The voices are inviting. I'm filled with an overwhelming feeling of happiness and warmth. We are cared for in these halls. We are gods and goddesses once again, heroes and Romans with long shared memories of all our past glories. I feel great joy. I am admired and held in awe. Day after day, people stare at my beauty. They study me and look at my form with envy. Men and women of all nations come just to see me. I am lit by a single spotlight, my marble white under its glare. If you are academics, their eyes clouded with history and visions, questioning what was the old Greek and Latin texts, what are they trying to say? Looking for some bits of understanding of all that was before, of all that was when I was first created. A few are lovers, not interested in marble, but more in the warm touch of one another's hands. For them, a visit to this temple is a distraction, a place to whisper secrets of love. I know so much about that. And children come, their eyes filled with wonder and dreams. One afternoon, a girl enters the room, her face damp and swollen from tears. She stares at me, moves slowly, directly toward me, and whispers, Venus, Goddess, Olympian, grant me this favor. She looks around as if afraid someone might hear her. Venus, I am with child. Grant her beauty and love, please. Her face is pleading once more. A believer walks the earth. After all this time, I am still worshipped.
The music was performed by Matthew Lee Embleton. This was an original composition with vocals by Minnie Rogers. You can find out more about this innovative composer by going to his website at http colon forward slash forward slash Matthew, that's M-A-T-T-H-E-W, Lee, that's spelled L-E-I-G-H, Embleton, E-M-B-L-E-T-O-N, dot C-O dot U-K. In late 2009 through 2011, he's been experimenting with classical and early music. In a track titled Late Night Improvisation, he plays a lute and digital piano that floats between ambient, contemporary, and jazz. Here's a little bit more of Him to Mithras. Let's take a listen. The music was played with permission of the author. Thanks, Matthew, for setting the mood. I'd like to thank the beautiful Nancy Kane for her dramatic narration as the goddess Venus. She appeared as the Roman wife on the way to the theater in episode 11, titled Who is James A. Bretney? She brings a wonderful interpretation to her part and approaches each reading with a nuanced performance. I couldn't do it without her. One of my favorite television shows as a kid was the program Star Trek. There was a particular episode titled Bread and Circuses. It was filmed in 1968 and tells of Captain Kirk and his shipmates fighting in a gladiatorial game on a planet that looks like the Roman Empire, except an empire that never fell and now possesses 20th century Earth technology. The show recreates gladiatorial games with television cameras and ringside commentary. It aired over 40 years ago, but has an uncanny resemblance to what reality television might look like if gladiatorial games were legal today. It holds up extremely well. Using Rome as a backdrop for alternate history is not a new subject, but is one of my favorite subjects and is done by many authors and creative writers. I highly recommend a book titled Roma Eterna by Robert Silverberg for alternate histories involving Nazi Germany and the Confederate States. You should check out Fatherland by Robert Harris and Guns of the South by Henry Turtle Dove. My recommendation for a podcast that provides a menu of a variety of alternate histories is Jordan Harbour's Twilight Histories. You can hear a show on http colon forward slash forward slash twilighthistories.com. You can download his show from iTunes as well. 
As you can tell, Jordan is a storyteller. The Roman Empire has been Islamic for almost 500 years. It has grown, flexed its muscles, and eased into a ripe golden age. But the Pax Islamica is about to come crashing to a violent end. The Mongols have stormed into the Eastern Empire, burning all the great cities. Here, the Mongols heard rumors of strange men with pale faces and a booty beyond anything seen in the East. Genghis Khan's eyes have hungrily turned to Rome. This is the world you've time-traveled to. This is your story. You wake in a strange room. Your clothes are foreign, and the walls are covered in objects from a different world. You don't know where or when you are, or if you're still dreaming. There are footsteps in the hall. Jumping up, you race out of the room and into the streets. You have just entered the Twilight Histories. Jordan would be the first to separate fact from fiction, for at one time he was an archaeologist. His world was based on fact, on the results of scientific study, on making connections, on what the find tells him from the ground. When you're an archaeologist, everything seems to come from the ground. Jordan, tell me a story. Tell me what it's like to be an archaeologist. The first archaeological dig I ever did was also the most terrifying. It was in Ireland, just outside Dublin in the countryside. The location at first seemed picturesque, with little medieval churches on the tops of hills. The tombstones in the yard were so old the names had eroded. The excavation was at Carrick Mines Castle. It was an important site stretching deep into the past. At its lowest levels were found Neolithic hand axes, but we weren't interested in the Stone Age. It was the 17th century castle that was our goal. When you think of a castle, you imagine great ramparts and towers, but all that was left of Carrick Mines Castle were a few scrappy walls, hardly as tall as a shovel. Carrick Mines Castle had been destroyed. All of its inhabitants were murdered, and its foundations were churned up and blasted by Oliver Cromwell's model army. This dig was different than the typical one we often picture on the covers of textbooks, with their shirtless university students and exotic ruins. It rained. It was cold and dreary and we were exposing a mass murder. My square, the place where I worked and ate, was littered with iron shot. Next to my square was a pit where two women had been garroted or choked to death with a rope. You could see the ropes around their necks, and their hands were tied behind their backs. In their pockets were found gold coins. The soldiers, it seems, were too busy to even bother checking their pockets. Stories start out this way. The first time, the most terrifying, the most interesting, or like in fairy tales, once upon a time. 
They can even start out with... One summer, I excavated a Roman fort in the Middle East. It was in the desert near the Wadi Rum. If you remember the film Lawrence of Arabia, the Wadi Rum was home to the Bedouin who lived just outside Aqaba, Lawrence's first major conquest. We spent our weekends in Aqaba. There was snorkeling in the Red Sea, and there were tea shops in the markets where you could smoke Egyptian-flavored tobacco from a nargila and watch the world go by. The fort we excavated was small and probably only housed 500 Roman soldiers. It was built in the late 2nd century over what may have been a Nabataean settlement. The Nabataeans built those fantastic funerary monuments at Petra, where Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was filmed. The Nabataeans had beautiful, graceful pottery in the Athenian black figure style. I pulled countless delicate shards from the lowest levels of the fort. The Romans, by contrast, used thick, courseware plates and cups that looked like they were made by uncaring hands. Jordan's actual adventures more than likely fuel his flights of imagination. If you listen to his podcasts on Twilight Histories, you can almost reach out and touch the things that he describes. You feel like you're actually there. I was given a square to excavate. It was located on the corner of what we called the stable. We weren't quite sure if it was in fact a stable, and it may have been a granary or some other structure, but that didn't matter at the time. I had a team of Bedouin laborers. Some rode in on camels, but most came in on large hired trucks. They lived in tents in the desert. They were small and thin and didn't really resemble the warriors from Lawrence of Arabia with their guns and blood feuds. The Bedouin loved to laugh and tell simple, childlike jokes. They also loved to sing. Sometimes they would sing in the morning a haunting desert song. It had no tones or rhythms I had ever heard, and it carried me to a different place. Jordan dreams of faraway places. He thinks of possibilities in the slip and slide of the time stream that sends normal history, if you can call any history normal, down an unstoppable trail. Man is a creature of imagination who can live an adventure in nothing more than a thought. We are storytellers by nature. Worlds are opened up in story, whether real or in imagination, they can all start with a simple opening that sounds something like once upon a time. The Bedouin didn't like to work. If I ever sat down to fill out my paperwork, they would disappear. Some would hide in a trench and nap. Others would go off into the desert to find kindling to light little fires for their tea. Turning to find my square devoid of workers was quite stressful, especially when the temperature rose to an unbelievable 50 degrees, and I had deadlines. After some weeks trying to coax them into doing a little work, I lost my temper at one of them. It's not something I'm proud of, and it turned out he was 
the head of one of the families. His name was Mohammed Faraj. He got mad back and picked up a shovel, digging it violently into the ground. He worked like a fiend. I felt as though I'd hurt his pride. He was a very well-respected man, after all, a man who was never spoken down to, least of all from some young university student. I eventually made some weak gestures of apology, and by the next day we were friends. We shared our lunch, sardines, eggs, and pita bread with tea. He even taught me some Bedouin songs. Having Mohammed Faraj on my side changed everything. The other Bedouin worked a lot harder, and soon I was opening up two more squares. The most interesting thing I found was a storm drain in the corner of the building. Sticking my hand in, I found a round stone, probably a catapult shot taken from the armory. It had been thrown into the drain to unclog it, but that didn't work. As I was soon to discover, the drain had hundreds of years of pottery swept into it. There were Byzantine shards, scraps of Roman courseware, and, of course, Nabataean black figure pottery. When most days are spent carefully brushing away sand and recording differences in sediment, uncovering a drain full of treasures like these is like striking a vein of gold. I never found the end of the drain, or all the treasures it could have held, I was always hoping there would be a bag of coins somewhere down there. When the season ended, I had to bury it in the sand. As for Mohammed Faraj, I asked how I could get a hold of him. He told me, Just write Mohammed Faraj in Alhumeyma, Jordan. The post office would know how to find him. I landed in Cairo and spent a good month traveling through Egypt. I was surprised by just how ancient the landscape was. Sometimes you can look across the Nile and see farmers plowing the land using oxen and old wooden plows. You'll see them navigating between Bronze Age ruins, and you can't help but imagine a Roman tourist seeing the same thing and with the same sense of wonder. When you go to Italy, you feel transported to the Renaissance. But when you go to Egypt, you are in the ancient world. I remember visiting a Roman city, a ruin. When I visit ruins, I sometimes try to imagine them as they once were. I derive some small pleasure from the exercise. To do it, I almost have to get myself into a meditative state, focus on my breathing and still my mind. Allow the crumbled walls to rise again and cover them with paintings. The streets fill with bustling crowds, and I listen carefully for their language and laughter, for the chanting from temples and from the clomping of hooves on the cobbles. Well, after a few hours of wandering alone through the Roman city, I remember coming to a room in a Roman villa. It was a peaceful room, with a ceiling open to the air, yet covered with awnings to shade against the desert heat. In the wall was a delicately carved fountain. My mind's eye, I could see a Roman girl sitting in this room, peacefully reading a book. 
Maybe it was imagining that little girl, but I suddenly became aware that this city was a ruin, destroyed. This peaceful little place came to a violent end. The past is gone. Only residues of it remain. Archaeologists interpret these clues in different ways. In the 19th century, the past was romanticized. The famous archaeologist who excavated Troy, Heinrich Schliemann, would open a chapter of very heady technical material with a description of a sunset over the crest of Hesalik, or would describe the shadows of warriors scaling the walls. In the early 20th century, the romance of archaeology was still strong. Sir Arthur Evans caught a fever when excavating Knossos. In his archaeological report, he described a feverish hallucination in which he saw the figures from the paintings come alive and pull themselves from the walls. As Evans lay there, they reenacted an ancient Minoan ritual. To Sir Arthur Evans, this living experience of the past was far more important than the measurements of pottery shards. This romantic perception of the past changed after the war. In the 1950s and 60s, archaeology sought to become a more scientific discipline, divorced from all emotion. The spectator was no longer important. There were no more sunsets in archaeological reports, no feverish visions. Facts, figures, and numbers were now the only content. I believe something was lost in this shift away from Evans and Schliemann. We changed the reason why we seek the past. No longer were we to find meaning and inspiration from the past to the modern or new archaeologists, as they were called. The purpose was to explicate and explain the total range of physical and cultural similarities and differences characteristic of the entire spatio-temporal span of man's existence. I believe in this statement, in this new definition of archaeology, you can find the death of the imagination. There are some schools of archaeology which are making careful strides to alter this course. Some archaeologists now consider the spectator important. There are even cases where archaeologists will be asked what they feel or envision when they excavate. To me, the imagination of the archaeologist is the greatest treasure of all, worthy of any museum. The archaeologists who spend months carefully peeling away layers of the past can't help but daydream as they brush away the soil. Don't you want to know what they see? Don't you think their visions would be fascinating? I once had a professor who told me the greatest pleasure was not in studying the past, but in reliving it in your mind's eye. Not surprisingly, this professor won many teaching awards. He told me that 
When you can see the ancients going about their business, speaking their language, in their built and natural environment, that's the greatest joy. You don't need to shovel all day to experience that. You just need to sit and close your eyes. The Basis of What If is a respected study, played by historians and social theorists alike. It makes you wonder about your own world. There are things we accept about our world as normal, not realizing that what we accept as reality can be based on mere chance. What if Agincourt went one way, or Midway went another? What if the barbarians invaded the Roman Empire sooner? What if the Cuban Missile Crisis went the other way? What if the Church failed to rise, leaving a pagan religion in the West unopposed? And what if Rome became an industrial nation? Jordan, tell me that story. Here you learn that slavery has been banished from the empire a generation ago. An explosion of technology followed that has changed the lives of everyone. You learn that the far borders are plagued by a ferocious tribe called the Huns. Thanks to the rails, the legions are able to react quickly. New weapons, such as the steam-powered Testudo, a tank-like vehicle, and the pneumatic catapult, have greatly reduced casualties along the front. Of course, barbarians are always a favorite topic in the newspapers. Yes, there is the printing press now. Although lately barbarians have been moved to page two, everyone in town is talking about the latest Roman endeavor, India. Since the Parthians were annexed, yes, Parthia was annexed, India has been seen as the next great prize. Finally, the newspapers say, the legions have broken through the Khyber Pass and have brought the standard to the Indus River Valley. A drawing in the paper shows a Roman general on horseback looking much like Alexander leading his soldiers valiantly across a very Roman pontoon bridge. You return to your time machine and travel south through the cities of Dacia and then out across the Pontus, what your map calls the Black Sea. It's dotted with steam-driven paddle wheelers, giant cargo ships, Sleek warships, large triremes with paddle wheels and puffing chimneys guard the trade routes. I have in the line uh, Jordan Harbour, who is the host of the podcast Twilight Histories. If you please, uh, Jordan, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks very much, Rob. Thanks for having me. Jordan, I have a question. When you piece together the past, do you look at what's there or what's not there? I think it's a combination of both. As an archaeologist, I once had a professor, he told me that an archaeologist is, when he sees a, uh, a, a, when he sees ruins, he's not looking at stones that have crumbled on the ground and, and have vines growing on top of them. That archaeologist is seeing a street scene, seeing buildings and people walking through those streets. And So ideally, an archaeologist is one who is able to, in his imagination, build up the past or build those ruins into something that are more tangible to the imagination. 
you have to think to be an archaeologist, uh, a note-taker with an interest in everything. What does this speck of clay tell you? Uh, what does this piece of pottery tell to the people who made it? You have to base your conclusions on science and what we know from research and what you can touch. But, but Jordan, don't you need an imagination to be an archaeologist? There are a number of different forms of archaeology. So when you study your archaeological theory, there are, say, the 19th century romantic version of archaeology where um, uh, in the heritage of Heinrich Schliemann, you have this kind of romantic notion of of Troy and uh, Mycenae. And you're kind of – the whole idea is one of an imaginary world that you're trying to recreate. And you you come into archaeology – perhaps a little bit more biased, more um, less scientific. I mean, you're using scientific principles, but it's in order to prove a point. So you're trying to recreate the past and recreate this sort of imaginary world that uh, you, you've grown up with, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey and so forth. Were you always a storyteller? You know, I've always had an affinity for writing. I've always loved it when I was in grade two. I did a project on, you know, what is your future profession going to be? And I chose writing and I had to present that to the class. And, and so it's it's always sort of been a, a passion for me. And I'm I'm glad that I've at least taken this podcast on and, and allowed myself some kind of creative outlet. It's a it's a great joy. What kind of reaction have you gotten from your podcast? It's it's been pretty positive actually. It's it's actually amazing. Uh, the you know almost every day I have someone writing in, saying you know how they they just love the show and and put on their headphones and turn the lights out and and listen to it. It's it's kind of a kind of a little bit embarrassing, <laughs> uh, but also you know very encouraging. So you know whenever I get someone writing in that that really um you know says that it was that it affected them. You know, it it really makes my day. So it's something that I show my wife and, and uh, you know, it, it encourages me to keep going. What are the problems associated with archaeology? One of the main problems with archaeology is that it's kind of like uh, if I was to describe Spain to you without ever having been to Spain, I wouldn't be giving you a complete picture of what that place looks like or what it feels like or smells like. I would be basing it on some kind of evidence that comes down to me, either through writing or through uh, maybe material finds that have sort of managed to fly their way over or, or come by ship. And that's kind of what archaeology is. It's trying to describe the past, the, the experience of the past, as best as we possibly can with a very limited amount of material. So our, in a lot of cases, archaeology isn't a science like we would want it to be. It doesn't describe the past uh, in the wake that kind of allows us to have a complete picture. We need to fill in the gaps, and that's sort of where an imagination can come into play with archaeology. Do you have a favorite historical period? Well, you know, I went into university as a Roman man. I loved the Romans ever since I was 12. And I came out of university as a Greek man. Uh, and that's because I had this great professor. His name was Dr. Gordon Shrimpton. Um, 
and he was a storyteller. When he went and stood in front of the class, I knew that I, I could just put my pen down and I didn't have to keep notes in the traditional sense because when he talked, it was just, it was, a, you know, stories of the ancient world and, and he'd really uh, give us this kind of, I don't know, ticket to the past. And so, it, and he, because he was a, a, a Greek man, it, you know, it completely changed my perception of, of the Greeks. You know, I still love the Romans and I took lots of courses on the Romans, but it was really the, the Greeks that I came out with a, uh, a strong kind of sense of uh, greater understanding. One of the shows that you have is, uh, is, uh, Roma Islamica. Uh, why did you choose a, uh, an Islamic Rome. One of the more exotic ideas that, that came to me was this, this idea of Rome being taken over by Islam. So, you know, in the show Roma Islamica, the, the premise of it stems not from uh, Rome that survived and then adopted Islam, but more of a, a Rome that uh, had already been in decline and then Islam took over and kind of gave it that phoenix rising from the ashes experience and, and brought it to this uh, incredible height of uh, kind of a, a new golden age. So the Roman Empire is is fully Islamic and kind of divorces itself from Baghdad and Mecca and, and becomes this uh, new Roman Empire, Roma Islamica. Another episode that you have is a Rome that rises to be an industrial nation. Uh, how, how did that – tell us about it. I've always been interested in Rome and, you know, what could be the different incarnations. And, and uh, you know, the, one of the first ones that you kind of ask yourself is what if Rome had industrialized? I had a professor in, in university who um, – he asked us this question and we had to, uh, you know, write an essay on it. And would Rome have industrialized if it had survived or was it capable of um, based on sort of the socioeconomic factors and, and slavery and as well as the uh, the technologies that they had available to them, you know, the, the certain types of mechanics and, and so forth, would, you know, all of these things put together, would they have industrialized? And it's kind of a question that's been playing in my mind for a long time. So I thought as kind of an early podcast, when I was just starting out, I thought, why not uh, give that one a shot and, and just really try to visualize for the audience what it would be like to actually walk the streets of Rome uh, as an industrial strength. What does an industrial Rome look like? Well, one of the places that you visit in Rome Industrial is this Germanic town. Uh, so you fly in your time machine over Germania as it was conquered by the Romans. And you fly into this, this town and, and you see the, the smokestacks. And it's kind of look, looks Victorian in a sense. But as you go down into the streets, you see um, things that are very Roman. So on the one hand, you see these kind of uh, Germanic peoples with their long mustaches and, and uh, as well as, you know, aprons and uh, from working in the forges and, and the factories. But you also see Roman women being carried around on litters and and uh, Roman men in togas. So there's sort of, it's kind of this dark sooty city in Germania that has on the one hand an infusion of Roman virtues and, and costumes and 
and scents and smells. And on the other hand, it has this very Victorian kind of flavor to it as well. In your imagination, uh, what uh, direction do you think you can take Rome in in new episodes? I was talking to Mike Duncan uh, the other day, and I asked him this question about, you know, do you think Rome could have survived? Was there any sort of outside chance that if something different had happened, the Romans could have made it out and uh, survived to this day? And he said, yes, he, he thought so. Um, couldn't prove it and didn't want to, but <laughs> it, it sort of sparked the imagination. So I said, well, uh, at what point do you think that point of departure would have taken place? And Mike said that he thought that in the, I believe, the the third or the fourth century, when the the Romans were sort of uh, annexing themselves with the Germans and the Germans were playing a huge role in the Roman world in its defense and uh, you know they had these massive armies and, and these very um, very savvy sort of uh, German military commanders the Romans they made a mistake by not infusing those people into their system and allowing them to flourish and perhaps even becoming a kind of Germanized uh, Roman Empire and so the thought is according to Mike that if the Germans had been infused into the Roman Empire, then that Roman Empire would have survived. And so you would have had this very Germanic kind of Roman Empire, kind of like the, uh, I guess, the, the Holy Roman Empire to an extent. So I think that's kind of a direction that I would love to explore, you know, a very Germanic kind of Roman Empire. On your show, you take your listeners to various worlds. Uh, do you have a favorite one? I think that uh, my favorite concepts for shows are ones that I haven't even done yet. So I, it's sort of a case of because each show takes such a long time to to do, I kind of get tired of them after a while. Like I'm, if I'm working on a show for 40 hours, uh, all I can think of is getting on to the next show. So I've got some ideas for shows such as um, an Aztec empire that traded with the Chinese and – long before Columbus, so 14th, 14th and 15th century. And by the time the Europeans arrived in North America, they dealt with uh, a people that had iron and cannons and, and, and weapons that could, uh, could match their own, and also the numbers that could just uh, wash away any kind of invading army. Could you tell me where you attended school? Yeah, it was uh, University of Victoria. And that paper you wrote, what did you get on it? <laughs> oh, boy, uh, it was a long time ago. Uh, okay, I, that's all right. <laughs> uh, what, so what worlds will Twilight Histories go to next? What, what have you got in the can uh, for your listeners? So there's a show coming up about the Library of Alexandria, how the library survives and uh, faces off against an Islamic incursion. There's going to be one about the um, after the conquest of Alexander the Great into India. There's this kind of flood of of Indian uh, philosophy and and art and architecture into Greece. Something that kind of didn't happen as much as as you might think it could have. So in this scenario, you have 
these very Hellenistic uh, philosophers going head to head against Indian philosophers, uh, you know, with their Sanskrit and their their Rig Vedas, and kind of Athens becomes a um, a center for Hinduism. Oh, I want to hear that one. <laughs> Still playing up the concept in my mind. Well, I always wanted to ask this question of a guest, and uh, let's just say you have a time machine and imagine how that would change the face of archaeology. Just think, you know, and you can go back and clarify to people what um, something that people always wondered about. So what puzzle of ancient Rome would you want to clarify for those in the 21st century? I think even in the most well-documented periods of ancient Rome, you're still not getting the full picture. So you're, you're getting stories. You're getting archaeological remains. You're getting dates that correspond. And, and, and you can almost play out month by month what's going on in ancient Rome. You still don't get the sense of what it would actually be like to walk the streets of Rome. And that's what I'm interested in more than anything else. It's something that archaeology can only go so far to answer. And being able to go back, maybe not answer sort of the uh, the big questions of of um, uh, of uh, you know what politician killed who or you know murder mysteries aside, I'm interested in what it would be like to actually walk the streets of Rome. What would it smell like? What would the graffiti look like on the walls? I mean, there's a lot that we can sort of glean from uh, documents and, and maybe even some scratchings on Pom- from Pompeii, but. But to actually take that next leap and be in the past, that's something that I would like to be able to convey through a time machine. I'll bring a video recorder and and, uh, send it back. Well, Jordan, thanks for being on the show. it's, uh, It's been a real pleasure, Rob. Thanks very much for having me. unusual one. This came to me purely by accident by the good graces of William Glover. He listens to the show and he is in the profession of archaeology. You can see an interesting article that William wrote online called Kennegwick Man and the Story of the Settlement of the New World. A body found in Washington State seems to have a radiocarbon date of 5,750 years old more or less. This has resulted in a major controversy between the government and Indian tribes that claim the remains as their own. The tribes want control of the remains, and archaeologists feel it's strong evidence of, well, the larger picture of man's migration across the continent. No opinion here, by the way, but go read William's article on the web. It's on the Laura Lee Show website. William emailed me about it, and he wrote, quote, 
I'm surprised you found it. It was a hot topic, and from time to time I had to play the role of forensic anthropologist and deputy coroner. State law meant I had to carry that title to transport human remains and have dealt with laws as they were being put together, and excavating remains well over the 13,000-year mark, I seem to find people that want my opinion. End quote. The book, I suspect, is something he used in his early days. The title of the book is A Guide to Archaeological Field Methods by Robert F. Heiser. Yes, it's a textbook. I did a little research on Robert Heiser. He was an archaeologist who conducted extensive field work and reporting in the California southwestern United States in the Great Basin. He received many awards in his lifetime, an honorary doctorate of sciences from the University of Nevada, Guggenheim Fellowships, and he uh, was a fellow in the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Science from 1972 to 1973, and a host of other awards are listed. I have reviewed fictional books in the past on the show, so why not something a little more based on reality? It's a textbook. So if you love Indiana Jones, you have to love this. For what do you think Indy was teaching his students all those years on that pristine campus where the girls were making goo-goo eyes at him? Of course, I'm not saying that he used Heiser's book, but you know, he could have. Stone artifacts rarely need any treatment in the field. Should broken stone artifacts be found, it is preferable to pack them as carefully as necessary and to leave repair for a later time in the museum. Textiles from open prehistoric sites are predominantly found in fragments and in a carbonized state. Such specimens are delicate and must be treated with extreme care. It is great to think of the profession as a non-stop discovery of the Ark of the Covenant while fighting Nazis, while discovering the Holy Grail and taking the crystal skull to unleash the magnificent power of a buried UFO. For those of you who have never seen the Indiana Jones movie trilogy, I just capsulized the entire movie series in a paragraph for you. Imagining archaeology to be what Indiana Jones goes through in every movie is just plain fun. It's interesting, but we have to go back to reality a little bit. I'm picking up a Washington Post because I found something related to this subject. In the style section, well, there's a large photograph of a uh, archaeologist named Jared Burks using ground-penetrating radar at Walter Pierce Park in Adams Morgan. Why would a archaeologist be sweeping the ground with a radar system? Well, the article is by Michael Pierce. On a May afternoon in 2001, a group of volunteers cleaning up trash in Walter C. Pierce Community Park in Adams Morgan found a bone that appeared to be a human femur. The Washington region was enthralled at the time by the search for missing former government intern Chandra Levy, and the bone's discovery sent murmurs rippling through the cleanup crew. Finally, a nurse in the group examined the bone. It's not Chandra, she told the group. This bone is very old. 
Beneath Walter Pierce Park are two adjacent historic cemeteries, the quarter-acre burying ground or place of interment for the Society of Friends or Quakers, which dates to 1809, and a six-and-three-quarter-acre African-American cemetery, which operated between 1870 and 1890. At the peak of its use, Mount Pleasant Plains Cemetery was the largest African-American burial ground in the district. Sometimes archaeology finds things that were more recent than thousands upon thousands of years ago. Does man have that short a memory? It sure seems so. From what I can see from the book, explained on the introductory page, is that good archaeology, very good archaeology, comes down to good note-taking. I put the question to William Glover. It's about um, context, really. You can illustrate an object by making it a piece of art, but without uh, its context, it loses a lot of its value. That's why you record as much as possible. Um, It's for the people that will come after you that may either work in the same area or have an interest in a particular uh, time, and you won't be aware of it because archaeology is always an evolving subject. Page one from the book states, Photographic and notebook records of an excavation site are therefore the essential documents which accompany the specimens recovered, and these must be of an order of exactitude and completeness that future prehistorians will find adequate for their specialized investigations. The book proceeds to show how to operate your very own archaeological site, what you need to do, how you need to approach it. The author quotes W. Taylor's work, a study of archaeology, which I think sums it up by providing the archaeologist with a good axiom to live by. It's not what you find, but how you find it. William, why is that important? Often there are subtle clues that um, someone that's, well, even someone that's trained might not catch at first glance. You can, say, pick up a projectile point, or um, if you're on the continent, you might find what might be the remains of of an old Roman sword, or um, area around Utsi, the Iceman. There was an awful lot of information that was lost that would tell us a larger story and put an object, a person, into a a larger context. And it's, once again, you're trying to find the right number of words in order to fill out a picture or a narrative. And that's part of what archaeology is, is it's building the narrative of an individual, a group, or a state same way that you might look at a building. There are various elements within it that you can't get if you detach it from its original setting. So 
you want to build the setting, you say 40 years ago, we didn't have the same kind of technology to allow us to look at pollen. Pollen tells you an awful lot about seasons, the environment, and potentially where a particular crop might have come from or how it was developed and modified by man. So those are um, things that show up that we we don't get if you just pluck an artifact out of the ground and um, it finds its way onto the antiquities market. It may be beautiful, but there was more information that was overlooked or never looked at by the original excavators, if they're, um, even if they're trained. When I removed the book from the large manila envelope, I thought it smelled of cigarette smoke. That's okay. I like that better than the smell of dust. It seems to me, by the paragraphs and the subject matter, the book tells us that the archaeologist should know more than facts and figures and what should belong to what period. And if I read the intention of the book correctly, there has to be knowledge that falls into knowing such facts as vegetation, soil samples, and the erosion that took place in the topography that you're digging. A good basis of geology seems to be a necessity for understanding what you are digging into. Page 17 talks about the range of interpretive possibilities offered by material being uncovered. In other words, data that just sits there is just data. It must be synthesized and interpreted through the best lens that we can develop. It must be tagged and documented. What are the skills for an archaeologist? What other talents does an Indiana Jones need other than knowing how to drive a motorcycle or ride a horse? Well, there are things like map reading, understanding contours, soil samples, and the typography of the earth, and most of all, an understanding on how to excavate an archaeological site. What is it like living on a dig? Well, typically you don't live on a site, um, although it does happen. Um, there's an element of not uh, not understanding or appreciating the history of a particular area. If you look at the way in which Rome developed after the Roman Empire during its period of decline, people knew they were in part of history, but they robbed it of its marble. Artifacts were income. It's what happens um, in the process of war, where certain things um, are lost forever. So whoever did um, work on that area, or if it's never discovered, it's in a sense like removing a paragraph from a well-crafted book. It all depends on how it's built. If you're living on a site, if you're living on a structure, it, there's sets of regulations in many places that say, well, you have to do an archaeological survey. 
and that may or may not reveal whether or not there's a prehistoric presence or a historic presence. Um, I dare say in Europe, there's no place that doesn't have some element of history that's within its soil. Speaking of that, I found a story in the Daily Mail. I googled it, by the way. It's dated June 2009. Workers in England were digging up a road in preparation for the Olympics. It is there they found 50 headless bodies. Was this proof of a mass murderer working his way through Dorset? No. Well, maybe. Uh, It depends how you look at it. The burial site was near a place called Maiden Castle. It's Europe's largest Iron Age hill fort where a local Celtic tribe staged its final stand against the forces of Vespasian. The fort was occupied and abandoned during various points in history. According to the archaeologist Mortimer Wheeler, Vespasians captured at least 20 of these hill forts. Evidence suggests the Romans occupied it for a while anyway, as well as the Celts. The discovery of the bodies suggests a battle, and as gruesome as the thought might be, summary executions. What stuff comes up from beneath the ground? The book is dated, perhaps. Okay, the first printing was in 1949, and the seventh printing was in 1966. If you're looking to get a copy of a guide to archaeological field methods, it's offered on Amazon. Prices range from $23 to $42, but you can pick it up as low as $4.99, and I'm sure there are newer editions to be had. As for the date of the book, I'm not too worried about it, because good information remains the same. In medicine, anatomy remains the same. Treatments, drugs, and surgical procedures can change. In astronomy, the mathematics remain the same. However, the tools can change in tracking the movement of the stars. What about archaeology? Computers have entered the profession to add capabilities that were not there before. Dig sites can be modeled on the computer screen to show how they changed over time. Computer simulations can be used to recreate the living conditions of how the land looked thousands of years ago. And if you find some pillars buried in the ground, like Stonehenge, you can use computers to see how they correspond to the heavens floating above your head. And data must be collected. And that means the profession really hasn't changed because you need a researcher in the dirt to bring up what lies beneath the soil. The book, A Guide to Archaeological Field Methods, is how the data is collected. It is not how the data is crunched. It gives us insight in how to look for artifacts, how to excavate a site, and how to handle the materials brought out from the ground. You are making notes. You are cataloging. 
Someone said once the beginning of knowledge is calling things by their proper names. The book has an illustration of the skeleton of the human body and the names of the different parts. It shows how to make a cross-section of the earth and where the bones were found in relationship to the surface. How many skeletons did Indiana Jones run across during one of his adventures anyway? Even Indy had to catalog a few while moving on through the Temple of Doom. So that leads a question. How are human remains handled in the field? Well, in North America, uh, well, in the United States, there's um, an act that's called the Native American Graves Repatriation Act. So prior to the 80s, you would carefully excavate the burial area since no, it's rare that people just dig a hole in the ground and dump somebody in it. That tells you that's part of a, a completely different story than a well-presented burial. And you have to look at it more like a crime scene, as what you're looking at is a, a human being. You want to look for the small bones that are contained within the body, what other artifacts are associated with the body. You take soil samples so that you can look at things. It's like finding red ochre that stains some of the bones or in the soil layer just above the body. The reason that we know that a Neanderthal burial of a young female had flowers was through pollen analysis. So there's there's small things you don't look at. There are larger things you do look at. I've excavated people that um, you could tell how hard they worked. There, there's evidence of injury and illness, and the only time you don't get that evidence is when they don't survive the illness. And depending on what time period, if you're dealing with a major disease outbreak, which has major loss of life, that's where you get these large burials uh, uh, that aren't laid out in a uh, considered fashion. They're basically um, get them in the ground as quick as you can. You can see that in the way in which history records, like the Black Death or uh, events like that. I got the bugs for archaeology, um, like a lot of people, by um, reading the more classical work, but um, I had uh, particular talents that were useful in, um, in California and the West, where um, we were developing laws when um, I first started in the 70s that you needed in order to um, preserve valuable archaeological resources since we knew that um, you can only dig a site once. If you leave some of it, uh, there's a good chance someone might be able to find it again or be able to uh, go back and collect additional material, but 
I was good at what I did. I, I learned a considerable amount of forensic. In, I had certain forensic talent, so I could deal with human burials and did probably over 350 of them. So I've seen people in all varieties, uh, from cremations to um, folks that um, were in conflicts, trying to put that picture together was uh, a real challenge for me. Burial sites are part of the job. You have to pay attention to where the person was buried and what they were buried with. What implements? Was he buried with food? Was he buried with silver and maybe even gold? You are collecting what you find. You are storing it and transporting it to be researched later. Think about it as being a detective. Where was the artifact found? What was around it? You are piecing together evidence. The item itself, the ground it was found on, the depth it was found below the earth. What artifacts were found with it? Policemen take photographs of the crime scene. They map it out with meticulous detail. So do you. There are times when you see the evidence of that. There are other crimes that are tribal crimes, such as uh, infidelity. One, one burial was fit the, the criteria of a traditional execution and uh, defined a, a projectile point, an arrowhead, embedded in someone's back and that it matches the ethnographic or the information that was collected in an earlier time when the culture hadn't completely gone extinct, um, mentioned that was pretty remarkable. You can see it in um, the way in which um, pigs are often used, which I found kind of curious. In eliminating the evidence of um, certain classes of, um, of killings, so there were ancient... Um, historic crimes as well as potentially ancient crimes that you can get a picture of. When you come across a, a skull that has fractures and um, other evidence of um, what looks like some kind of tra uh, dramatic event and traumatic event, you can begin to look at that. You can look at age-related things, diseases that were brought that were either indigenous to the area or were brought by the Europeans. Uh, so all of that plays a part. So when you um, see um, one of the specials on mummies, you might see that there was tuberculosis that um, left its imprint on the bone. You can see those kinds of things, and once your eye is schooled for that, you can see certain things, uh, the way in which the dead are sometimes placed with no grave goods in out-of-the-way areas is also an indication that something happened. And um, I've worked in, his, in the vicinity of historic areas. Insurance companies at one time were conveniently um, interested in mapping out buildings and where things were. and. We knew we were in an area that during the historic period there was a hog pen. Well, when you find random pieces of human bone in an area that was 
hog pen, it makes you wonder. That's where speculation comes in. You both begin to develop your own narrative about what might have gone on. How is textbook archaeology different from real archaeology? Textbook archaeology only takes you so far. When you, um, there are some people that aren't field archaeologists. That's a sort of a special breed because you're going to be in, un- at times, uncomfortable physical situations. There are people that write and do uh, and decipher field notes. They they have a, a specialty and they're very valuable in being able to present the information. There are some folks that have a particular skill at being able to excavate rapidly and carefully, and that's something that you either have it or you don't. I've seen people that are incredible in the lab, but are almost hopeless when you uh, get them in the field. So we use the skills and talents on both ends of the spectrum. Some people that only get to see the field infrequently want to get their hands dirty sometimes, but you have to watch them carefully to make sure they don't do something that they, an experienced excavator, would pick up a little earlier. But we all make mistakes, and the way in which you um, understand a site is by visiting it and by excavating it. Well, listen, William, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to allow me to interview you. All right. Bye-bye. I found a blog site by uh, Indy Hall. It's from Britain. The title of it is Archaeological Dig at Beckenscott. She gives advice on what to bring and what to wear. She writes, It might seem like a no-brainer, but you're going to be exposed to the elements. It's important to prepare for the great outdoors and any kind of weather Mother Nature might bestow on your archaeological dig. First, you want to pack clothes that can be tossed out at the end of the season because you're going to get dirty, very dirty. Soil can and often does stain clothing, and depending on your dig location, some stains never come out. T-shirts and tank tops work fine in warmer locales, and most people like to wear hats. She particularly doesn't. Bandanas are wonderful on hot summer days. Shoes are very important, she writes. Strongly suggest sturdy hiking boots if you will be doing any shovel work. You can always put a pair of flip-flops or tennis shoes in your backpack. Did I mention a backpack? Yes. According to Andy Hall, you'll need it. And the most important thing is keeping yourself hydrated. She's heard horror stories. So bring yourself at least two or more large jugs of water and several bottles of your favorite sports drink. And keep the caffeine drinking till after hours. During her first attempt at working in a trench, she came to the realization that nothing in archaeology can be hurried. Her blog entry concludes with a discovery that she made when she was scrubbing many of the pieces of pottery that they brought up from underneath the earth. It was a tiny corner of a highly decorated pottery piece, and they had found a cup lid, which had 
been made during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. It had tiny faces painted around the top of the lid. That must be the true joy of archaeology, finding something and bringing it up to the light. The book, A Guide to Archaeological Field Methods, I have added to my ancient Rome-refocused library. I've decided it doesn't smell like cigarette smoke at all. It smells of the trenches. It smells of mystery. It smells of things that have not yet been discovered. This concludes episode 12, season 2 of Ancient Rome Refocused. Tune in next time for season 3, and I promise to pick up the pace a little bit. See you next time.